Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's pretend that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn off all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the faceless nun. Part One. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Shirley Jackson, The Haunting of Hill House For eighty-two years, from 1862 to 1944, a building stood in the county of Essex that was known as the most haunted house in England. Even though it existed for less than a century, Borley Rectory is still known as one of the most terrifying and one of the most exhaustively documented haunted houses the world has ever known. Even though it was gutted by a mysterious fire in 1939 and its ruins demolished in 1944, the tale of Borley Rectory continues to cast long shadows over the imagination. The small village of Borley is located along the River Stour, about 70 miles north of the city of London. Its name derives from the Saxon words bat and lay, which means boar's pasture. It is home to a handful of scattered farmhouses, as well as the ruins of Borley Hall, a grand manor that was once the home of the Waldegrave family, one of whom, Sir Edward, died in the Tower of London after being imprisoned there by Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, for her persecution of Protestants. Borley Church, is a small stone building that serves the parish, which includes two other nearby rural hamlets. When exactly the church was built is not known, but parts of it may date back as far as the 12th century. Legend has it that a Benedictine monastery once stood on the site where Borley Rectory was eventually built, the story goes that around 1372, there was a monk who fell in love with a nun from a nearby convent, and they had numerous passionate, clandestine meetings in the dark woods that surrounded the monastery. 
They had planned to run away together and elope, even hiring two grooms with a horse-drawn carriage to take them to their new lives, but their relationship was discovered before they could make their escape. As punishment for breaking their sacred vows of chastity, the monk was hanged, the two coachmen were beheaded, and the nun was walled up alive in the basement of the monastery on the same spot where Borley Rectory would rise almost five hundred years later. After a previous church building was destroyed by fire in 1841, Borley Rectory was constructed in 1862 by Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull, whose family had lived in Borley for three hundred years. It was a large house with two main floors, a spacious, shadowy attic, and a dark, cold cellar. Originally consisting of 18 rooms, it grew to 23 rooms as another entire wing was built in order to accommodate the bull's 14 children. Borley's Gothic style of architecture already gave it a somewhat strange and forbidding look. No one ever called the rectory beautiful. In fact, some referred to it as a red-bricked Victorian monstrosity. Its crimson exterior often choked by overgrown vines of green ivy. Perhaps in a nod to the gruesome legend of the monk and the walled-up nun, the drawing-room fireplace of Borley Rectory is decorated with two unsettlingly large wooden carvings of Benedictine monks. A report on the haunting of Borley Rectory, written by paranormal researcher Sidney H. Glanville for Fate magazine in 1951, describes Borley Rectory very much as Shirley Jackson would describe her hill house eight years later. It stood about 150 yards from the church and was divided from it by the graveyard and a narrow, unfrequented lane. The house was almost entirely surrounded by tall trees which overshadowed it and had a very darkening and depressing effect on the house both inside and out. It was uh, substantially built of brick and stone. All the doors were thick and heavy, the floors were of heavy wood in some parts and of stone in other rooms. Some of the windows, such as the kitchen, scullery, and passages, were iron-barred, giving those parts of the house a prison-like appearance. The house had an enclosed central courtyard. No gas or electricity was or ever had been available. Lighting was supplied by oil lamps and candles, and the only water supply was from a deep well in the courtyard. And so, the haunting of Borley Rectory begins. Local legends about Borley Rectory being haunted date back as early as 1863, a year after the house was built. The members of the Bull family began to report hearing the sounds of unexplained footsteps echoing through the house both during the day and at night. These phantom footsteps soon escalated into sightings of full apparitions, 
The ghost seen most frequently at Borley was the sad figure of a lonely nun. Her face was never visible, but the children of the Bull family and Reverend Henry Bull himself often saw the ghostly nun in her gray robes walking the same path in the garden over and over. She usually appeared from an adjoining field, stepped over a low stone wall, and walked across the lawn, always disappearing when she reached the trees separating the garden from the lane. When Henry Bull mentioned these sightings to locals in the village, they told him the nun had been haunting the grounds long before Borley Rectory was built. The area in which she had been seen was long known to all as the Nun's Walk. The ghost of the nun was often seen at twilight, but was also seen in broad daylight many times, and sometimes she was seen inside the house. Family members would return home and see the nun looking down at them from a second-story window before vanishing. While the family was eating dinner, they would suddenly notice that the nun was watching them from just outside the dining room window. Henry Bull was so disturbed by these particular sightings of the ghost that he had the dining room window bricked up. After this was done, both family members and servants reported hearing the sound of persistent knocking on the wall where the dining room window had been. Reverend Henry Bull, the man who built Borley Rectory, died in his bedroom, known as the Blue Room, in 1892. His body was found on the floor underneath one of the windows, a window that overlooked the nun's walk. Local village gossips wondered if Henry Bull had seen something that frightened him to death. Henry Bull's eldest son, known as Reverend Harry Bull, took over the rectory after his father's death in 1892. Harry, along with his many siblings, seems to have enjoyed the haunting of Borley more than their father had. They talked about the mysterious things they heard and saw in the house to anyone who would listen. Harry Bull actually built a gazebo in the garden that overlooked the nun's walk, so he could sit outside and smoke a cigar while watching her almost nightly visitation. On July 28, 1900, four of Harry's sisters saw the ghost of the nun at twilight and finally decided to try and communicate with her. They walked out of the house towards the faceless specter, but as they got close to it, the nun faded away and disappeared. By 1916, another frightening supernatural event had manifested itself at Borley Rectory, a phantom coach driven by two headless horsemen. This apparition was also seen and heard by many witnesses over the years. A man named Edward Cooper, who worked as the gardener at Borley, reported in the book The Most Haunted House in England that one bright moonlit night when he and his wife were retiring to rest, he happened to look out of the window and in the meadow of the church opposite, 
he saw some bright moving lights. Wondering why such light should be present at such a time and place, he watched and realized that the lights were approaching. As they neared the road, he saw that the lights were really the headlamps attached to a large old-fashioned black coach which was rapidly sweeping across the hedge and rode toward him and the rectory. He gasped in astonishment. The whole turnout was so clear-cut that he could see the harness of the two horses glittering in the light of the headlamps and the moon. On the top of the coach were two figures. Their heads were missing. In amazement, he shouted to his wife, but she was just too late to see the extraordinary spectacle. She arrived at the window as the coach swept into the farmyard and disappeared. Walter Bull, Harry's brother, was often away at sea, but even he had experiences at Borley he could not explain. He said that often when he walked home at night, he would hear footsteps following him through the darkness. Sometimes he would leave the path and hide behind a tree in order to catch the person who had been following him walking by. The footsteps would continue past the tree, but there was no one there, no one human. These ghostly footsteps were heard on the road leading to Borley Rectory by many villagers, and locals would often refuse to walk by the house after dark, if they were alone. Reverend Harry Bull would sometimes tell his family, I have seen the little man again. This was an ancient-looking, dwarf-like man who appeared to Harry in the garden. The grotesque little man would raise his arm, pointing his fingers at Harry, and then disappear. Harry's sister, Ethel Bull, is the only other person to see this strange figure at Borley Rectory. Footsteps were heard inside the house continuously. The family reported that at night, the footsteps would be heard approaching their bedroom doors. They would reach a door, stop, and then out of the silence, three loud, distinct Knockings were heard on the door. When the door was opened, there would be no one there. The ghostly figure of a tall man in dark robes began to be seen walking around the grounds of Borley Rectory at night, and occasionally loud crashing noises echoed through the darkened rooms after midnight. Despite these terrifying noises, nothing was ever found broken or even moved. Reverend Harry Bull died in 1927 in the Blue Room, the same room where his father Henry had died in 1892. Harry Bull is said to have often joked to friends in his last days that after he died, he would haunt Borley himself if he could. With Harry's death in 1927, the Bull family's residence at Borley Rectory came to an end, but the house had acquired a sinister reputation, and it took a full year for the church to find a new rector willing to live in it. Many refused, as the tales of the haunting were by now well known. On October 2, 1928, 
Reverend Eric Smith moved into the rectory with his wife, Mabel. They would leave Borley after only two years, later describing them as the darkest years of their life. The first paranormal incident experienced by Eric and Mabel Smith were the sound of footsteps, which they most often heard in the Blue Room. Within their first week of living in the haunted rectory, the Smiths began to hear and see the servants' bells in the kitchen ringing by themselves. Since Eric and Mabel had no children, most of the rectory was unused at this time, and bells were frequently sounded from rooms that were known to be empty and abandoned. When searched, no one else was ever found inside the house, but the bells continued to ring. Because of this and other phenomena, the Smiths found it difficult to keep servants in the house for much longer than a week. They would become too frightened to work at Borley Rectory and quit. One day, while exploring the library, Mabel Smith opened a cobweb-infested cupboard and found a strange parcel wrapped in brown paper. It was about the size of a football, she said, and tied with string. When Mabel unwrapped the parcel, she was horrified to discover it contained a human skull. The skull was examined and judged to be that of a woman. Their surviving members of the Bull family were questioned about the skull in the library, but none of them would ever admit to knowing where it had come from or who it may have belonged to. Hoping to appease the spirits, Reverend Smith gave the skull a Christian burial in the Borley churchyard, but the haunting of the rectory did not stop. Both the Smiths reported repeated sightings of the ghostly nun, and Mabel Smith also testified to hearing and seeing the phantom coach as well. Doors began to mysteriously lock by themselves inside the house, and the sounds of the unearthly footsteps the loud knocking within the walls and the unexplained ringing of the bells continued day and night. The Smiths grew desperate, and they needed help. They wrote a letter to the Daily Mail newspaper detailing the haunting they were experiencing at Borley Rectory and asked if they could be put in touch with the Society for Psychical Research, which had been founded in 1882 as a scholarly organization to scientifically investigate cases of the paranormal. First, the Daily Mail sent a reporter to the rectory to interview the Smiths and the first of many articles written about the haunting of Borley Rectory appeared on June 10, 1929. Two days later, on June 12, the paper sent Harry Price to investigate the house. Harry Price was a paranormal researcher and author who was born on January 17, 1881, he was deeply passionate about investigating the supernatural and was also an amateur magician. Because of his intimate knowledge of magic tricks and illusions, Price was especially adept at exposing fraudulent psychics and mediums, although he did promote the work of those who he believed had genuine powers. He joined the Society for Psychical Research in 1920, 
and his first notable success came in 1922, when he exposed William Hope, one of the most famous spirit photographers of the day, as a fraud, who created his ghostly images with a double exposure. When Harry Price published his findings about William Hope and other frauds, fellow SPR member and creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, led a mass resignation in protest, saying that Price was an enemy of the spiritualist movement. Conan Doyle said that if Harry Price kept writing such sewage, he would meet the same fate as Harry Houdini. Instead, Harry Price became famous. In his book, Confessions of a Ghost Hunter, Harry Price wrote about his first visit to Borley Rectory. Price says that when he sent a telegraph to Reverend Smith saying he was coming to investigate, Smith wrote back, Thank God. Come quickly. Price arrived the next day to see the rectory and interview the Smiths, and almost immediately after he stepped foot in the house for the first time, paranormal activity increased dramatically. A red glass candlestick from the blue room was thrown from the staircase when everyone inside the house was known to be downstairs. A vase shattered by itself. Mysterious stones were thrown inside the house by invisible hands. At one o'clock in the morning, loud rapping noises were heard coming from behind a mirror in the blue room, as if a spirit was desperately trying to communicate with the living. Harry Price said later of his first visit to Borley Rectory on June 12, 1929, Although I've investigated many haunted houses before and since, never have such phenomena so impressed me as they did on this historic day. Sixteen hours of thrills. After these accounts of the haunting appeared in the newspapers, the Smiths were inundated by sightseers desperate to see evidence of ghosts at Borley. Mabel Smith's health began to crumble under the constant strain of unexplained happenings, along with curiosity seekers who invaded the property, trampling the gardens and peering through the windows. Finally, the police had to be called for the Smiths to be left in peace. Although they never experienced the more violent poltergeist activity that occurred the night Harry Price visited again, Reverend Eric Smith resigned and he and Mabel moved out of the rectory on July 14, 1929, never to return. Reverend Smith later said of Borley Rectory, The house was evil from top to bottom, and it should have been burned to the ground years ago. Again, the parish had difficulty finding a new tenant for Borley Rectory, the next inhabitants of the house were Reverend Lionel Foister, his wife Mary Ann, and their adopted daughter Adelaide. Lionel was a cousin of the Bull family, who had occupied Borley from 1862 to 1927, and both he and Mary Ann remembered Harry Bull well, and were friends with Harry's sister Ethel Bull. So, unlike the Smiths, the Foisters were aware of the house's ghostly history before they agreed to live there. Lionel, Marianne, and Adelaide Foister moved into the rectory on October 16, 1930, and remained for five years. 
and it was during this time that the haunting of Borley reached its most violent and terrifying heights. As had the inhabitants before them, Lionel and Marianne Foister slept in the blue room, the same room where Henry Bull and his son Harry had died. Within the first few weeks of living at Borley Rectory, Marianne Foister heard heavy footsteps following her into the blue room. When she turned around to see who it was, she came face to face with the apparition of a man wearing a red dressing gown. Marianne and the spectral gentleman locked eyes, and then the ghost simply disappeared. Marianne recognized the spirit. It was Reverend Harry Bull, a man she had known in life, who had died in that very same room four years earlier. The ghost of the man who on his deathbed said he would come back to haunt the rectory after he died if he could. From that point on, the hauntings became more violent and more and more focused on Marianne Foister. Her husband Lionel wrote in his diary of this period, which he later unsuccessfully tried to publish as a book called Fifteen Months in a Haunted House, Still Greater Mystery mystery hidden from me, mystery revealed only to Marianne. Personal objects belonging to Marianne and Lionel began to disappear mysteriously. Some would reappear in odd places days or weeks later, but some were never seen again. Lionel Foister's written sermons would vanish overnight. When he started hiding them in between the pages of his Bible, they stopped going missing. Walking sticks in the library were seen to move by themselves. The scent of lavender sometimes filled the house without any earthly explanation. The kitchen table and various pieces of china would sometimes be found turned over and broken. Beds turned over on their sides and their linens were thrown to the floor. At 11 o'clock one night, Lionel Foister was in the bathroom when he heard Marianne start screaming. He rushed out and ran into Marianne, who had blood running down her face from a deep cut under her left eye. She said, I was in the blue room when something hit me in the face and nearly stunned me for a moment. I was carrying a candle in my hand but saw no one or anything. On at least two other occasions, Marianne was violently slapped and thrown from her bed in the middle of the night by an unseen force. Lionel and Marianne's daughter Adelaide became locked in a room that should not have been able to be locked and then physically attacked by something horrible. Windows shattered by themselves and the disembodied footsteps the ringing of the bells, as well as sightings of the ghostly nun, continued to plague the rectory. Lionel Foister himself tried to perform an exorcism at Borley. While he was in the middle of the attempt, he was suddenly struck in the chest by a stone the size of a fist. And then the spectral writing began to appear on the walls. All of these were photographed, and all appeared to be pleased asking Marianne Foister for help. Most of the writings appeared in the area surrounding the kitchen. Sometimes they were legible. Sometimes they were scrawls that appeared to have been done in great haste before the writer was ripped away. 
the first message said, Marianne, get help, followed by words that were not able to be read. Marianne wrote underneath this message, I cannot understand, tell me more. A few days later, another ghostly message appeared underneath her words. It said, Lights, Mass, and Prayers. Several weeks later, another eerie message was written on the opposite wall. Marianne, please help get. On the wall outside the private chapel inside Borley Rectory, the ghost wrote, Get light and prayers here, before becoming illegible. Near the end of that message, the words, His body, are legible. The Foisters realized they were dealing with a supernatural force that was growing in strength, and they needed help in dealing with it. So, Lionel Foister wrote to Harry Price, member of the Society for Psychical Research who had previously investigated Borley Rectory in 1929. In his letter to Price, Lionel included his diary of all the paranormal phenomena that had occurred since the family had moved in. It consisted of over 2,000 unexplained occurrences within the house itself and the grounds surrounding it. By this time, Lionel and Marianne Foister and their adopted daughter Adelaide lived at Borley with two other guests. One was Marianne's younger brother Ian and a lodger and handyman named Frank Peerless. Both Ian and Frank, as well as other family friends, were first-hand witnesses to the haunting. Harry Price visited Borley Rectory for the second time on October 13th. 1931. He later wrote of this visit in a letter. We went to Borley as arranged on Tuesday last, and have had two nights on the premises. It is the most amazing case. Psychologically, the case is of great value. Price thought the ghost of the nun had become fixated on Marianne Foister, and later wrote in his book Poltergeist Over England, Mrs. Foister was a young woman during her residence in Borley Rectory, and undoubtedly there was a very sympathetic nexus between her and the nun, witness the wall writings and pathetic appeals for help. Harry Price also witnessed the bell ringing and the throwing of stones. Lionel Foister's health began to fail, and he was eventually confined to a wheelchair. Finally, in October 1935, after enduring five years of near-constant paranormal activity, the Foisters left Borley Rectory forever. After this, the church decided to close the house since no one wanted to live in it due to its spooky reputation. It remained vacant and abandoned for two years. For the first time in Borley's history, the ghosts had the rectory all to themselves. Sidney Glanville, who visited the house during this period, wrote, The once beautiful lawns and gardens became a veritable jungle of weeds and rotting undergrowth. The once fine house had become a rickety affair of swinging doors and broken glass. The gazebo was derelict and decaying. The house was cold and dark possessing an almost uncanny silence. 
The only sounds heard were the scuttling of a few mice and the intermittent and mournful calls of owls in the trees. The first light of dawn coming through the dusty windows was very welcome. One person who could not get Borley Rectory out of his mind was Harry Price. Perhaps this was the investigation that could once and for all prove or disprove the existence of spirits, of the possibility of survival after death. Price rented Borley Rectory for a period of one year, beginning in May 1937. He placed an advertisement in the personals column of the Times newspaper on May 25, 1937, which read, Haunted House Responsible persons of leisure and intelligence, intrepid, critical, and unbiased, are invited to join rota of observers in a year's night-and-day investigation of alleged haunted house in the home counties. Printed instructions supplied. Scientific training or ability to operate simple instruments and advantage. House situated in lonely hamlet, so own car is essential. Harry Price interviewed over 200 people and eventually chose 48 amateur researchers to investigate the haunting of Borley Rectory. All of them received detailed instructions of how to conduct their research and write reports of what they experienced in the house as well as a history of all the paranormal phenomena that had occurred up to that time. The researchers gained access to the rectory from the two caretakers, Mr. and Mrs. Arbon, who lived in a cottage nearby. The library was turned into the base of operations. Each day, the investigators would tour the building and grounds and report if anything had moved or if they had, had heard any unexplained sounds. At dusk, they were required to sit in the gazebo that overlooked the nun's walk and watch for any appearance of this lonely specter. Another required session was to sit in the blue room in complete darkness for one hour, the same room in which both Henry and Harry Bull had died. Seances in the blue room were also conducted on a regular basis. Once each observational period was over, each investigator was required to submit a written report to Harry Price about any supernatural events they had witnessed. These reports contain numerous accounts of objects moving, bells ringing, disembodied footsteps, and loud thumping noises that could not be explained. A small and eerie pet cemetery was also discovered on the grounds. On March 27, 1938, Harry Price held a seance at Borley Rectory with the medium Helen Glanville, the sister of Sidney Glanville, one of Price's many amateur investigators. During this seance, the medium made contact with the nun's ghost, who finally revealed her name, Marie Lair. The spirit said she was a French nun who was murdered in an older building on the site which the rectory was later built on, and that her body had been buried in the cellar. Another spirit also came through during this seance and communicated an ominous prophecy that within a year Borley Rectory would be destroyed by fire, and that afterward the bones of a murdered person would be found among the ashes. Exactly 11 months later, 
on February 27, 1939. The new owner of Borley Rectory, Captain W.H. Gregson, was unpacking boxes when he said an oil lamp turned over by itself. The fire quickly spread, and soon the entire house was ablaze. Villagers came to watch the haunted rectory burn, and one of them, a woman named Miss Williams, reported that she saw the ghost of the nun standing at a second-floor window surrounded by the flames. The interior of the house was reduced to ashes. Only the brick walls remained. The prophecy had been fulfilled. In 1940, Harry Price compiled all of his paranormal research into a book about Borley Rectory, which he called the most haunted house in England. It became a bestseller, and in it Price said, I came to the conclusion that I could find no other explanation for some of the Borley phenomena than the popular theory of survival after death. I would go so far as to state that the Borley case presents a better argument for survival than any case with which I am familiar. Harry Price made one final visit to Borley Rectory before it before its ruins were demolished in 1944, he and a team of assistants began digging in the area where the cellar had been, and they soon made a grim discovery. Just as the spirit had predicted at the 1938 seance, they found human bones, one of which was scientifically identified as the jawbone of a young woman. Price believed that these were the bones of the nun, and they were given a Christian burial in the, in the graveyard nearby. To this day, the land where Borley Rectory once stood is an empty, overgrown field. No other house has ever been built there since the rectory burned. The tale of Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in England, remains one of the most compelling and well-documented examples of the existence of ghosts of survival after death. However, the truth about what really happened at Borley Rectory is much more complicated. There is much more of this story to be told. Join me next midnight for the continuation of the tale of Borley Rectory. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please like Going Dark Theater on Facebook and write a review of the podcast if the spirit moves you as well. If you want to support this podcast, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash joshhitchens, where you'll get early access to the episodes as well as their transcripts and access to other spooky things I'm working on. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. And until our next midnight together, I wish you very pleasant dreams. And now, Going Dark.